You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. And now, a word from our sponsor, Zscaler, the leader in cloud security. Cyber attackers are using AI in creative ways to compromise users and breach organizations. In a security landscape where you must fight AI with AI, the best AI protection comes from having the best data. Zscaler has extended its zero-trust architecture with powerful AI engines that are trained and tuned by 500 trillion daily signals. Learn more about Zscaler Zero Trust plus AI to prevent ransomware and AI attacks. Experience your world secured. Visit zscaler.com slash zero trust AI. Hi, and welcome to SpyCast, from the secret files of the International Spy Museum in Washington, D.C. I'm Dr. Vince Houghton, the museum's historian and curator. Every week, SpyCast brings you interesting conversations with authors, scholars, and practitioners who live in the world of global espionage. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns about SpyCast, or if you want to suggest someone who might be a good future guest, email us at spycast at spymuseum.org. That's spycast at spymuseum.org. Also, if you like what you hear, and even if you don't, please take a minute to review us on iTunes or whatever platform you might be listening. We're always looking for ways to make SpyCast better, and you can help. We're joined today by Pete Tesoris, who's a retired analyst of military all-source intelligence for the U.S. government, both the National Grand Intelligence Center and the Defense Intelligence Agency. He's also a retired lieutenant colonel in the U.S. Army Reserve and has written 30 books on military history and alternate military history as a military historian and biographer. One of these books is Major General George H. Sharp and the Creation of American Military Intelligence in the Civil War. And that's what we're going to go and talk about today. So welcome, Pete. Thank you for taking the time to talk to us here at SpyCast. Real pleasure. So whenever I get a book like this, and it's, it's a large book, I mean, this is, this is a, a hefty, you're getting your money's worth when you buy a book like this. I, I usually flip to the bibliography and the notes because I know how to party, and that's, that's, that's <laughs> I'm not the most interesting person. Um, but what I noticed is there's tons of primary sources in this book. And what makes me wonder about this, this is not a new story. You know, we didn't just find out about George Sharp a couple of years ago. This is obviously 150 plus years ago. Why hasn't there been a real biography of Sharp up until this point? This is really the first comprehensive biography of a man that's not like he's been secret for so long. Well, he has in, in many ways. Uh, if you read almost all of the major books on the Civil War in the Eastern Theater, he hardly appears. Okay, He came back to life when uh, Edwin Fischel wrote his wonderful Secret War for the Union in 1996. Fischel was an NSA analyst. Starting in the 1950s, he started to do research on Sharp for this book, which took the Union intelligence effort in the Eastern Theater up until Gettysburg. Okay? And there's a great deal of information about Sharp, and I read this and was utterly fascinated. Okay, what about this man? You know, he had not appeared anywhere else. So I said, this would make a great biography. And as a former intelligence, an or I was an, actually an analyst at that time, I thought, this is fascinating. No one's ever really talked about this sort of thing before. So I started out with his 20 surviving letters that are in the Senate uh, House Museum in his hometown of Kingston, New York, and transcribed those because it's hard to go back to 19th century handwriting back and forth. Right. So my wife helped me figure out what a lot of the, you know, meant. And now I'm really conversant in his writing. But it was only 20 letters, wartime letters. And I said, well, what else? Well, then I discovered online the official records of the rebellion that you could download in Word. And there was a ton of materials on Sharp. All of his messages, his reports, everything like this was in there. So I downloaded these, and I started putting them into a database, chronological database. Then um, I went to the archives, and I used a vacuum there. All of the military service records of Sharp, 
and all of his people and people associated with him. Uh, and I transcribed these by, uh, by hand, uh, well, into word. Um, a friend, um, Bill Feiss, uh, who wrote uh, another great book, he was a protege official, um, lent me the uh, BMI records, the Bureau of Military Information records that are in the archives. And so I printed all those out and transcribed those again into Word. Um, hundreds and hundreds of documents, right? I got the telegrams sent back and forth. Then I scoured the Library of Congress and they had in there the uh, uh, John C. Babcock collection. And Babcock was his civilian uh, deputy who is his order of battle man. Who had worked for Pinkerton before. Yeah, he'd worked for, yeah, yeah briefly. Probably. And uh, uh, then just scoured uh, everything in the presidential records uh, at the Library of Congress for references to Sharp in his post-war life. This had to have taken years. How long did you, did you do this research? Years. For? Years. <laughs> I started in uh, 2007 and it published it last year, so it was basically 11 years. Um, so I had this database of thousands and thousands of documents. And the utility of this is that you read them chronologically and you're finding out exactly what the Union commanders knew, which has never been done before. Right. What they knew and when they knew it. Yes. Right, yeah. Well, I mean, that's like, I've, I've looked at a lot of um, World War I deck logs, mm -hmm. you know, for American ships during World War I. It's exactly that, right? You have a day-to-day -day about what was happening. I mean, that, that to me is a fascinating mm -hmm. way of looking at this. Well, I also found uh, Babcock's uh, uh, journal, official journal that covered about three or four months in uh, after Gettysburg, and which indicated that there were a lot more of these, but none of the rest have survived. This mm -hmm. one was in the archives, and it was every day what information they had been bringing in, mostly from prisoners, and uh, because he was the order of battle man, um, Sharp got in a huge amount of information uh, from interrogations and debriefings and so on. The, one of the most useful sources he had were um, contrabands, mm -hmm. the slaves who escaped. And the Confederates were very indiscreet in talking about, uh, around them. They treated them like furniture. And so you'd have these people come in, they were the body servant of a general, and out would come this incredible order of battle data because they ha many of them had wonderful memories. In fact, Charlie Wright came in. He, um, he was came in. The cavalry captured him right before Gettysburg, and uh, Sharp's other deputy, John Captain John McEntee, went down and talked to him, and he related how Lee's army was moving through Gordonsville into the valley for the invasion, and he talked about the two corps that had moved in, uh, moved through when when he was there, and he identified every regiment. Right. He had that good a memory, and they checked it against their order of battle. I mean, it doesn't get any better than right. that. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's, that's like having a, a satellite, right? To be able to just watch them and kind of pick up one by one somebody that's that fluent in understanding who they are and who the leadership is and everything else. Yeah, well, I, let me ask you about this, because you spent that many years, and you're very honest in the book, about kind of liking and admiring George Sharp by the time you were done. Is that a... Is that a problem? I mean, I know it's a problem with people who write biographies. Is that something that you were cognizant of? Is, is treating this man objectively and writing a kind of a true biography? Or, or was it okay to kind of admire somebody who's the subject of, of your book? Well, I thought it was fine. I mean, he was an admirable man. How could you not uh, respect and admire him, uh, the, the way he behaved? Um, in his writings, interrogations, whatever, he never uses the N-word. Other, other people did. Right? In fact, he had been a great supporter of African-American civil rights after the Civil War as a politician in New York. Um, he was a kind man. He took care of his regiment. Um, he remained the colonel of his regiment, even though he was acting as the, uh, uh, in effect, the G2 of the Army of the Potomac because his commission, it was a state commission tied to that regiment. Mm -hmm. If he had given up command, he would have lost his commission. So 
he would he was always consulted about what was going on in the regiment he would visit the men in the hospitals um, he would uh, they would give him their pay meant for their families he would take it down to the nest bank with a gold dome mm -hmm. here and uh, deposit it and then write a check to his uncle at a bank in Kingston New York with the list of how much money to give the dependents he was the only this is the only case of an allotment system that I know of that was set up for the families, mm. right? And after the war, he was the only general to build a, to build a statue to his regiment rather than the other way around. Right. And so the book is full of evidence of how he truly cared for all the men in his regiment and he showed kindness to other people that happened to come into his orbit. Um, also, he was charming. He was a hail fellow well met. He was... Uh, a world-class raconteur that could have given Lincoln a run for his money. Yeah, you talk about the storytelling. I mean, I kind of think of today, he was a colonel at the time, and he's around people like Grant and Meade and others, and they want him around because he's just a good storyteller. Oh, he is, that. yes. And it, it is strange. I mean, even anyone who's been around the military is a, kind of a lowly colonel kind of holding court with all these generals and just kind of being the center of attention, especially with some of the egos of some of these generals that are just willing to let him kind of take center stage versus them themselves. Uh, he became one of Grant's family of generals, uh, which was a very select group of people that Grant absolutely trusted, um, which says a lot for his character. Um, he became a lifelong hero worshiper of Grant. And when Grant was dying of uh, throat cancer, or mouth cancer, whatever, um, he rushed to his home and said, please, uh, let me take him to my, my uh, mansion in Kingston, New York, where the, the air is much better, and, and so I'll take care of him. And they said, no, he's too far gone. You, mm -hmm. He can't be moved. But uh, Grant made him the, um, Grant truly trusted him in this crisis of, in 1870. Uh, Grant Grant was not going to let the Tweed Ring falsify another federal election to the House. So he appointed Sharp as the U.S. Marshal of the Southern District of New York, first to conduct an honest census and then an honest registration of voters. And the Tweed Ring wasn't going to put up with this. They had death threats to him. Um, but uh, Grant put him in charge of the entire military and naval garrison of the city of New York. He uh, allowed him to hire 5,000 marshals and arm them. And the uh, Tweed Ring was going to call out the National Guard, which they controlled, to bully people at the polling stations. And then Sharp um, had a come to Jesus talk with the mayor, and the Tweed Ring blinked. Yeah, this was Tammany Hall and the yeah. kind of famous machine, yeah. well, political machine. Yeah, they won the election, honestly, because they had such patronage among immigrants, but their power broke up after yeah. that. Uh, well, let's, let's go back about. 30 years, you know, 20 years from that, um, and look at the United States Army prior to the, this establishment of the BMI, and, and what was expected of a commander, even moving into the early Civil War, so, you know, by 1860-61, most commanding generals at that point were kind of their own director of analysis, their own analytical staff. They, weren't, they didn't have people there bringing in the information. They were just getting the raw intelligence themselves prior to the Civil War. That, that seems really problematic when you're talking about a war of that scope, like the Civil War where you're talking hundreds of thousands of soldiers and information an entire continent is bringing in. Well, you have to understand the traditions of the U.S. Army and the fact that it had been very small. So a commander, uh, basically, unless you're going back to the Mexican War, the largest number of troops that anyone had commanded had been a company. And so the company commander, or if he was even a you know, higher rank, he doesn't have more than a few companies in any particular operation. He could do his own mm -hmm. intelligence work. And going back to George Washington, who was his own G2, and a brilliant one at that, but again, the scope was very small. Um, but what really changed was the fact that now you had the people in arms. You had the scope of war had expanded beyond any ability of one general to be his own G2 anymore. And the man that recognized this was uh, 
uh, General Hooker. Uh, he had a taste for intelligence. He had, in effect, as a captain in the Mexican War, commanded a division be as an advisor to a volunteer general. And um, he, he, had very, he was very forward-thinking. He came up with many innovations, so for example, creating the Cavalry Corps, creating unit patches to give identity to the men, and, and so on. And um, he realized that he couldn't be his own G2 anymore. He had to professionalize it. And how, this, how he chose Sharp is a fascinating little story. At Fredericksburg, right before Sharp, I mean, um, Hooker becomes the commander of the Army of the Potomac, um, Sharp's regiment, the 120th New York, uh, was next to another regiment uh, with a large number of um, French immigrant volunteers, and the colonel was not a French speaker. He gives a command. There's a lot of confusion. They don't know what to do. And Sharp, who had learned fluent French in three years in Paris before the Civil War, rides over and in perfect parade ground French gives the command, and the regiment moves into line. Well, he was, uh, Sharp was in Hooker's Corps, and this comes to Hooker's attention, and then when he becomes commander, he calls in Sharp and says, look, I have this book in French on how to set up a secret service. Can you, can you uh, read it? Yes. Can you translate it? Yes. How fast? As fast as I can read it. Well, he did. And uh, with a further interview with the Provo Marshal and the Chief of Staff, he got this brand new job that he had to set up. And it was almost from scratch, except for John C. Babcock, mm -hmm. who was the only one with any experience. Um, but this was, I think, the 13th of February when he gets the job. And in the short time between then and the 28th of April, when the Army sets off for the Chancellorsville campaign, he had created a fully functioning all-source intelligence operation. You mentioned all-source intelligence, and, and Hooker seemed to be trying before the BMI was created, before Sharp. And you do a good job of this, but I went through and I pulled out the different sources of intelligence that Hooker was trying to use before he brings Sharp in. Uh, part of it was pickets, trying to pick up bugle calls and trying to figure mm -hmm. out where everybody was. Interrogation, of course, as you mentioned before. Actual spies, trying to recruit people in the South to provide information. Using scouts, not only to do scouting, but also to kind of be handlers for the spies. The Balloon Corps under Thaddeus Lowe, which was not necessarily run by Hooker, created by him, but he was using that information. The Signal Corps, which was bringing in information and doing somewhat kind of counterintelligence. And then also analysis and reporting that was kind of tucked don't, in Don't again. forget the cavalry. And the cavalry, it which was is very jealously guarded what they considered their, their rice bowl of, of exactly. collecting intelligence. What was interesting, you talked about Babcock, but you got Butterfield and Patrick are also there as being yeah. kind of helping. And Butterfield's an interesting, if you don't know the name uh, out there listening, uh, you certainly know a composition that he's made, uh, known at the time as Butterfield's Lullaby. I guess today we know it as Taps. Yes. Um, and these are guys who Hooker depended on for essentially doing staff work. And they're integral for Sharp in the BMI as well. Mm -hmm. One of the interesting things about the Civil War on the Union side was there were a lot of volunteer generals who had had um, full professional lives. They were used to managing large organizations and managing technology, emerging technologies, all right? Which was uh, something the U.S. Army just didn't have. And so you had someone like Butterfield, uh, who was a very talented man. Uh, he engineered a, a major deception uh, of Lee's Army, all on his own. So. Um, uh, these were talented men. Uh, General Patrick was kind of a Puritan, uh, you know, brimstone and thunder sort of guy, strict disciplinarian. Uh, what Hooker did is they tried to find a place for, for Sharp's new organization within the organization of the headquarters, and they decided, well, the provost marshal had done a lot of this with prisoners and so on, so we'll make Sharp the deputy provost marshal. Okay, so that's where he resided through most of the war. Um, and it worked out pretty well because uh, you know, they had to process a lar large number of prisoners, and prisoners were a major source mm -hmm. of uh, intelligence. Um, Patrick, however, did not get along with the unique personalities always that were attracted to intelligence. You know, because he was such a strict disciplinarian, he 
didn't like the way a lot of the scouts, you know, were kind of loosey-goosey with intelligence, I mean, with discipline and things like this. And, uh, but they managed to overcome most of this. You know, inevitably in any military organization, there's going to be certain frictions. But uh, by and large, uh, Marcena Patrick supported Sharp uh, very well. Um, and Butterfield used him very well. Um, Hooker said, these are your specific responsibilities. Uh, interrogations, debriefings, spies, scouts, analysis, order of battle, okay? But I want you to coordinate with everybody else. Right. Right? Coordinate with the cavalry, with the signal corps, with the balloon corps, and even anybody outside the army that you feel necessary. And he put him in touch with the provost, civilian provost marshal of Maryland. And the two of them worked beautifully because Baltimore, where this guy was located, was connected to Richmond in this spy channel. You know, they'd go back and forth. It was a major source for spies going in either direction. So he got a great deal of information about this, and they're helping each other all the time. Uh, this is one of the great things where you find military success is for, for you have people helping each other. You know, without the, for example, what I call the uh, intelligence agency tribalism that we had before 9-11 uh, and still there, you know, I think. Um, so he was always willing to help anybody. Um, and uh, I, But even in this case, you, you write that there was not yet quite an intelligence system in place. Because the cavalry arrested the scouts and wouldn't let them through sometimes, that the mail didn't get exploited in the correct way and the cavalry was reading the mail without really understanding it. Scouts being used by generals for guides and couriers yeah. and not actually doing their jobs. Well, this was towards the beginning of the creation of the Bureau of yeah. Military Information, but things kind of settled down after a while and you developed SOPs and people understood the proper relationships and so on. Um, then you had another bump after Gettysburg um, General Meade decided he was going to be his own G2. Sharp could keep those areas that he was responsible for, but Meade and his chief of staff would put everything together. And uh, there, there was a great deal of friction there. And uh, unfortunately, Meade, as Grant would later say in his memoirs, was a very capable officer who degraded those capabilities by his inability to get along with anyone. And there's a story in there that Sharp told years later that uh, when they were besieging Petersburg and they're at City Point, the headquarters, several senior British officers came as guests and they met Grant and Grant wanted to send him down to Meade for a tour of the siege. And he calls in uh, Sharp and says, do you, know if any do you know any generals that General Meade is on speaking terms with? <laughs> and Sharp said, I'll take them, you know. <laughs> So uh, it's interesting that uh, Meade never discusses Sharp in any of his, uh, in any of the post-war um, collections of his, of his uh, correspondence. Yeah, which is, we'll get to Gettysburg in a second, but knowing how the relationship, the dynamic worked at Gettysburg seems strange because, you know, Meade at that point may have lost that battle without Sharp's intelligence and argue probably would have lost that battle without the BMI provided information. Well, I think so, but see, I, I think one reason they did work together so well then is under the pressure of events. Yeah. Uh, um, Meade was brand new in that job, three days in that job. Right. And he had to rely on, on these the people around him. Uh, at Gettysburg, um, I say in my book that Sharp was responsible for three golden gifts to, the, to Meade at the tactical, operational art, and strategic levels of war. And that few U.S. Army commanders have been so well served. The first was, um, at the tactical level, was uh, the night of the 2nd of July, after the terrible fighting, where the, uh, they nearly broke, uh, where Longstreet nearly broke through. And, and this, is, this would be Little Round Top, and this would be 
if people know the history of Gettysburg, this is Joshua Chamberlain's charge and all that stuff. That, oh yes, that and, day. Yeah. yeah, and also the uh, where the last Confederate brigades nearly broke over Cemetery Ridge. Right. Okay. Um, that night, everyone is exhausted. Meade is calling a meeting of his corps commanders to sound out their fighting spirit. And he says to Butterfield, have Sharp report to me what reserves Lee has. Now Sharp during the battle himself had been used as a senior staff officer. Uh, and he had let his order of battle people do their work. They had collected, uh, had probably about 2,000 prisoners by their by then captured on the first two days. And it was Babcock who actually wrote the report, but he signed it for Sharp. Now, that report, a photocopy of that, not, to, not a Xerox, but a photocopy of that exists in the official papers at Georgetown University in his collection there. And I could not find it in the archives, and possibly because official wrote at some point that after he made known the existence of the BMI files. Someone went in and stole 150 documents. Right, the FBI recovered 50 or 100, but the others, probably including this one, are gone. But it is in Babcock's handwriting, so it's not a forgery. Right. And it said, we have identified every regiment in the Army of Northern Virginia except those in Pickett's division. Boom. Now, Meade knows exactly the reserves that Lee has on the battlefield. Pickett was the small Pickett's division was the smallest of the nine in Lee's army. And actually it was weaker than they thought because it had started out with five brigades, but two had been detached and had been de detached. So recently they had not been able to pick that up. Okay. Well then Meade says, look, I've I've got twenty-two thousand men in reserve, as opposed to what they thought was seven thousand, but it was closer to five. Okay. Um, so this steals his resolve to fight there, and as well as his corps commanders say, stick it out, you know. Right, because he, did, he didn't want to fight there in the first place. I mean, me No, he, le he, left, yeah. he left his, uh, most of his trains and his engineers behind on Pipe Creek along the Maryland-Pennsylvania border, which is why the Army went hungry. Right. Uh, the idea was to pull Lee toward Washington to set up a defense, you know, with yeah, your actual logistics behind you yeah. instead of fighting in Gettysburg where... Um, it was unintended. And then, of yeah. course, but Sharp's intelligence said, we can win this thing. The second gift okay, involved um, Captain Ulrich Dahlgren, one of George Meade's aides. This man was a born special operator. He volunteered for every special mission. Um, he led a raid across the, uh, the Rappahannock into Fredericksburg, right, just boldly right into the city. And then he volunteered to go along at Brandy Station, and he assumes command of a regiment when their commander's uh, shot, and he uh, cuts their way through a Confederate encirclement, whatever. It is. And he was the best dancer in Washington, handsome, blonde young man, the son of Admiral Dahlgren, father of American Naval Ordnance. On the 30th of June, Sharp's chief of scouts, who had a great talent for Riding, in, riding with the Confederate Army, passing himself off as a Confederate soldier. He had been doing this, and he came back, and he said, lo and behold, <coughs> I found out that the Confederates are expecting uh, major dispatches to come through Greenville, Pennsylvania, which was along their MSR, uh, on the 2nd. Now, this is, he's reporting to Sharp, Dahlgren hears it, it's a very small headquarters, okay? And he says to the chief of cavalry, give me 20 men and I will seize those dispatches. Well, he gets 11, but Sharp gives him his chief of scouts and three of his best scouts. So these 16 guys or whatever head out, they get to Greencastle, cutting the story a little short, and Dahlgren goes up to the steeple of this church in the center of town and he looks north, he sees this wagon train with the loot of Pennsylvania coming south with a company of infantry as train guards. And then he sees south coming north, a cavalry company, they call them companies back then, not troops, 
coming up and he says, that's gotta be the escort for the couriers. So he hides his men behind the building and as the two columns meet, they charge. And the element of surprise, you know, he's got what, 16 men and they panic two full Confederate companies. They capture 17 Confederates, including the couriers, two couriers and big bags of mail and sharp, I mean, Dahlgren is dumping them out and he's looking through it, but there are no dispatches. But the chief of scouts, Mil uh, Milton Klein, is noticing that one of the couriers is staring at his saddle. So he goes over and underneath the saddle is the leather dispatch case. And inside are two dispatches, both to Robert E. Lee, one from the um, adjutant general of the Confederates and the other from Jefferson Davis. And what does he do as a good intelligence officer? He opens them and reads them. The one from the uh, adjutant general said, oh, Lee's really mad at you for your suggestion that you, <laughs> you sent him before you left to create uh, uh, a small army under General Beauregard by pulling all of the garrisons in the Eastern Theater into Northern Virginia and threaten Washington from the South. In fact, apparently Lee had leaked this, right, so as to be a deception right. to distract the National Command Authority in Washington um, thinking that not only is Lee coming down on them from the north, but Beauregard's coming from the south. And um, the adjutant general also says, um, can you uh, detach a couple of your brigades to help the defenses of uh, Richmond? Basically telling him there are no reinforcements coming up. So this is at the operational level of war. Right, right. No reinforcements coming to Lee. The letter from Jefferson Davis is he's really upset with Lee for making the suggestion about creating an army under Beauregard. And then he goes on to list every brigade in the Eastern Theater uh, and where they are, what their mission is, and why they can't be moved. Okay, this is, at the, this is the golden right. gift at the strategic level of war, saying there's no army threatening Washington from the south. Okay, so he tells Klein, take uh, yeah, take the prisoners to Hagerstown. And he gets on his horse and he rides the 32 miles around the battle and arrives after the Corps Commander's Conference to deliver these dispatches. Now there was no telegraph between uh, Gettysburg and uh, Washington, so he sent Klein himself to deliver these. And when Stanton read these, Secretary of War Stanton, he poured gold into uh, Klein's hands. He was just so delighted. And then he retransmits both of these messages to all the senior officers in the Union Army in the Eastern Theater saying, we have never been able to look inside the enemy like this. Right. Okay? So Meade has incredible information. He knows exactly <coughs> what Lee's reserves are. He knows that Lee is not going to get any reinforcements. And he knows that the strategic threat to Washington Washington from the south does not exist, so he can get the National Command Authority off his back. And he can fight the battle more calm, you know, with calm assurance uh, that he's got everything in hand. I mean, it just demonstrates how good at something relatively new in document exploitation they had gotten and understanding, like, how to um, take advantage of any kind of situation where there may be mail or documents or or dispatches or anything else there. I mean, it's kind of this combination of quasi-signals intelligence, was there intercepting communications, but at the same time, mail and everything else and searching prisoners or searching bodies for documents that you can exploit later on for information. Well, Sharp um, filed all of This is all carefully filed mm -hmm. and cross-referenced. In fact, by the Overland campaign, his uh, organization has 40 wagons filled with uh, documents which is why needed suddenly needed all of these uh, uh, wagons and drivers and everything like this. Uh, so everything was at, at hand. Well, it's extraordinary how professional they were. I mean, if you, you include uh, prior to Chancellorsville, so that's going before Gettysburg, um, you, you print in the book a full document that is that order of battle. And if you read this and you've seen a modern-day intelligence report, there's not a lot of difference, right? This is 150 years old, and this is before there were classes on how to write intelligence reports and how to do analysis and everything, it is about as modern and thorough an intelligence report as it gets. Oh, it is, it is. I used to do a lot of order of battle work, uh, especially for um, 
National Ground Intelligence uh, Center, uh, old I Army ITAC. And I was just filled with admiration about how good it was. In fact, um, bef right before the, the uh, Chancellorsville campaign kicked off, Sharp was able to report Lee's actual ration strength within, like, I think, one and a half percent. That's how good it was. Um, and it doesn't get any better. Yeah, but this is down to, like, the regimental level and even mm -hmm. below that, where it's not just, oh, Longstreet's Corps is over here, yeah. you know, and, and Jackson's, it's, it's going down to, like, you know, colonels and lieutenant colonels, like, where that's information that's amazing. Well, a lot of this was very useful in uh, cross-checking uh, other information that they would get um, to ascertain the bona fides of deserters, because Lee would often send men in as deserters to... Uh, um, infused deception into the uh, U.S. Uh, yeah, I really found analysis. it interesting the counterintelligence side of, of dangles and, and deception operations, and then of course counterintelligence in the way of Jeb Stewart, which we can talk about in a second, because that's certainly part of the Gettysburg campaign. Mm -hmm. But of trying to cut off the eyes and ears of the BMI, you know, using cavalry and using deception and using all those other things. I mean, you, you look at the Bloom Corps stuff about Quaker guns and and you know, camouflage mm -hmm. and fake campfires and all that. Really extraordinary how advanced some of this counterintelligence was at the time. One advantage you have to recognize that Sharp had, that everybody had at that time, is that they were dealing with an enemy that spoke their own language, that shared their own customs and traditions. And so you weren't trying to, what is this Russian saying? What is this reference, historical reference to? What does it mean to him? And I found out uh, that we, in real life, you know, today or back then, uh, we didn't understand a lot of these things. Um, my own bias is you need a lot more history and maybe a little less technology because the history of cultures mm -hmm. and armies will tell you a great deal about how they're going to react. For example, there was... Well, I shouldn't get into that. <laughs> well, but I mean, the, the simple thing is that, you know, every one of these commanders went to the same university. I mean, they all went to West Point, right? You know, every single one of them knew each other. They all fought in the same wars together, the Mexican War. They knew how each other was going to react. And so kind of the, the cognitive bias that most analysts fall into today of mirror imaging and, and that that's not all problematic at the time because they are kind of kind of react the way you would expect them to because they all learn from the same professors at West Point. They all learn from the same war. In the Mexican War, and so you can understand people a little bit better than you might if you know fighting the Russians or anybody else. Still, it was a monumental achievement because yeah. it had never been done before. It had never been professionalized like this. Um, in fact, at Appomattox, when the Ar uh, the Army of Northern Virginia had to be paroled, Grant gave that job to Sharp, and Sharp was. Sharp apparently knew the order of battle of the Army of Virginia better than a lot of its senior officers. We'll be right back after this. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. The impact of this level of intelligence that had never been seen before you can see and normally you have like basically a chapter per battle and every single time you can see the impact on this battle and i hate counterfactual history of no i don't like the what ifs in a kind of professional sense i love reading the books for fun but kind of going back and saying what would have happened if i can't say the battles would have been won or lost differently if there wasn't intelligence but it's clear that intelligence played a vital role in everything starting at chancellorsville and going all the way up to the end of the war because you can point to that moment where, whether it's the document about order of battle or whether it's 
Buford, you know, stopping, stealing the march against, you know, the Confederates at Gettysburg or even things like the analysis about Pickett. All these things are, are game changers in many respects. Um, and, and then let's talk about Grant because we haven't even gotten to that point of the relationship between Grant and Sharp because when Grant takes over, he's dealing with the similar problem that Meade had and even Hooker before him. And it's about obviously Lee's army, but a very important component of Lee's army is where the hell is James Longstreet, who's been running around for years at this point, causing havoc for the Union army and somehow doing it without being seen. It's an entire core of Confederate soldiers moving around and no one really knows where they are. Longstreet, the, the, the primary collection priority, both at Chancellorsville and, and when the Overland campaign started, was where is Longstreet? Because at Chancellorsville, he had been sent with two of his divisions south of Richmond for an operation. And uh, before the Overland campaign, he had been sent out to reinforce Johnston's army of Tennessee for the Chattanooga-Chickamauga campaign. Uh, so whenever he was going to come, when was he going to show up? I mean, because Confederate First Corps has been called the mightiest offensive organization in the history of the United States. Um, and uh, As if Grant gets bogged down against Lee and all of a sudden Longstreet pops up on his flank, he's in big trouble. You know, that, that could be a real problem for the, you know, the, the Northern Army. I, I think, though, that um, it, the intelligence documentation for the Overland campaign really thins out because they were moving 40% of the time. And they literally did not have time to sit down and write all of these detailed reports out, so we don't know that much. But I, th I think Sharp was keeping him fairly well appraised of where Longstreet was. It was just where he was going to show up mm -hmm. uh, at that campaign. Uh, now with Grant, what Grant comes out to visit the Army of the Potomac right after he's made General-in-Chief of the Armies. And Sharp has a very positive impression of him. And he ends up making all of these trips over to Grant's headquarters from Meade's headquarters, which were very close. And Grant likes to listen to this stuff. Now, he had been served well, fairly well in the Western Theater by his intelligence chief. And, but the Army grinds south through the blood-soaked overland campaign. Um, and part of that is due to the fact that Grant is up against a master of the art of war. And I claim that if it hadn't been for Sharp, I think Lee would have fought him to a standstill. But he's getting enough information where he, he can keep going. But the real moment when Grant became a true believer of Sharp was after the army had settled into the siege of Petersburg. Okay, now um, Grant wanted to know where all of Lee's corps were. And the uh, first and third corps were in the defenses of Richmond and Petersburg. Grant said he wanted the Early's third, uh, second corps to be there, but Sharp keeps telling him, "I can't confirm it. I can't confirm right. it." And but to paraphrase Shakespeare, the wish is father to the thought. Grant wanted him to be there, so he's every little bit of evidence, and it wasn't very much that indicated they were there. Mostly, root camp rumors or dece outright deceptions. He just grabbed a hold of. But what had happened is. Right before Grant had slipped around the Army of Northern Virginia and crossed the James and besieged Petersburg, while he was, the security on both armies was so tight because they were both basically doing much the same thing. The Confederates didn't pick up Lee, uh, Grant's move. At the same time, Lee dispatched early with his second corps into the Shenandoah and the Union didn't pick that up at that time. And that's problematic because Earl Jubal Early is marching to Washington basically. Right, right. He's marching to Washington <laughs> and, and is um, Sharp is getting more and more information that indicates that he's not in the defenses of Petersburg and Richmond and that he's in the valley and still Grant won't believe it until 
you start to get the the uh, shrieks of pain from the you know the battle of monocacy and everything so suddenly he's had a come to jesus moment and he dispatches most of sixth corps up there and they get up there just in time to file into the defenses as early as about to make an assault on Washington. Basically walk into Washington because yeah. Washington had really no defenses to speak of before. Well, they had that, stripped them to yeah. reinforce the, all the losses of the uh, of um, uh, the Overland campaign. Also, what Grant did is he had sent Sharp up to hold the hand of the National Command Authority. Okay, and that, I've, I found this in the memoirs of one of um, um, Meade staff officers. You know, actual, the anecdote he told about Sharp going up there and everything like that. So after this, he has no doubt about how valuable Sharp is, because you know finally Sharp said they're in the valley, they're marching to Washington, and it was a hairbreadth escape of the Capitol, and that really sobered up Grant, and he transfers sharp to work directly for his own headquarters. The army's operating against Richmond. Well, now Meade has a screaming fit over this, right? He's gonna disband the whole BMI, they're worthless and everything like this. And they're so, what happens when two general officers get into a fight like this? Their staffs get together and kind of work out something, you know, you know. So what they did is sharp is up at City Point with Grant, and he's got a bunch of his scouts. But the analytical effort is left with the Army of the Potomac under Babcock and Captain McEntee. But they're all connected by telegraph now. So they're constantly passing information back and forth. Sharp is basically running, he's now the J2. Mm -hmm. Army's operating against Richmond. And everybody's still working for him. Right. Uh, well, now he's created almost a, an analysis directorate. Yes. You know, and then he's got his operations guys with him. That's yeah. yeah. So after this, uh, he and Grant are tight for the rest of their lives. Well, I'm not, we're going to get to that in a second because I think that after the war is interesting. Let me ask you uh, two things before we move to that. One, how much of a trickle down was there of? intelligence information being disseminated to people fighting in the South. I mean, think of someone like Sherman marching to the sea and, you know, people out West. I mean, Grant, since he's put in charge of all the armies, is he pushing out I Sharp's intelligence I, I other places? I didn't come across a lot of that. But I, and I, here I hate to use this word, assume that uh, it was getting out there because I'll give you one example of what I know where it's pushed out when um, Longstreet departed with two of his divisions for the to reinforce Johnston um, Sharp picked that up and that was sent directly to Rosecrans and it arrived before the Battle of Chickamauga mm -hmm. so he knew Longstreet was going to show up and he he wrote before the battle he says send me anything else that Sharp can tell me. Okay, so he's really appreciative of this. <clears throat> this is the only m major effort that I've found of um, the information being passed mm -hmm. out. But I, er, the way Grant was working and the way that what Sharp had at his disposal now, I'm sure a lot of it uh, went out. I've just not been able to find it. You mentioned earlier, and, and I want to pick back up on this theme, that Sharp was so indispensable to Grant because Grant really was playing with borrowed time at this point because as you mentioned in the book, the North is tired of war. You know, by by 64 in the beginning, they're, they're ready for this to end. And Lee could have just kept on playing defense. He could have basically done the, the Viet Cong mentality of not losing is winning and just kind of dragged out the war as long as he wanted to. And it was really Sharp's intelligence to help to kind of fix Lee and allow for Grant to destroy him in the end that really wins the war in many respects. Yes, uh, I would say that the, the combat multiplier for victory in the Eastern Theater was uh, intelligence Sharp was reporting. Now I have to understand too um, that Grant had got a hold of Lee 
around Richmond and Petersburg, and he wasn't going to let him go. Uh, the, the problem was, could Lee hold out long enough for Union morale to collapse, especially the uh, culminating in the 1864 presidential election? Um, and one of the reasons that Grant was able to keep such a grip on Lee's forces was the intelligence he was getting from the spy mistress of Richmond, who worked for Sharp, Elizabeth Van Lu, one of the most fascinating, heroic women in American history. Um, she had been a member of Richmond Society. You know, she had one of these big pillared mansions on the hill, and she had a big uh, uh, truck garden estate outside, and uh, her father had sent her to, Pencil to Philadelphia for her education, and she came back a uh, devoted unionist and abolitionist, and a member of unions, I mean, uh, uh, Richmond Society. And she, I guess she kept a lot of this to herself, but she emancipated all of her slaves and then employed them in, with honest wages. Um, she kept the little uh, Union community together under a lot of Confederate oppression during the war. But she wanted to do more. And so she would go visit the Union officers in Libby Prison and provide them medicines and food and other comforts, blankets and little furniture and books and everything. And even more, because they would occasionally escape, she would have her servants, her black servants, loiter around outside the building to snatch up any of these guys and take them to a safe house. Mm -hmm. Often it included a f the uh, false, uh, false room in her attic. And then she would get them out through um, Confederate lines back, in, back into Union control. Um, and as the Overland campaign ground down south, she made it known through General Butler uh, that she wanted to do even more. And then at when the siege began, Grant says to Sharp, get me inside Richmond. And he knew about Van Loo. So he sends in his new chief of scouts, uh, Judson Knight, um, and they make contact. And they set up uh, routes where the intelligence can get through the lines and everything. And it was said that flowers from her truck garden would end up on Lee's, I mean, on Grant's breakfast table with the dew still on them. <laughs> um, so most, and she had agents in the Confederate uh, War and Navy departments who were working for her. And another, um, uh, another major agent uh, was uh, Samuel Ruth, who ran the uh, major Confederate railroad going up towards Fredericksburg. And he had been a Union sympathizer, and what he'd been doing is slowing down everything throughout the war, you know, screwing up the timetables right. and everything like that. So he's getting a lot of detailed, mostly accurate information. Uh, and then as things get worse and worse for Lee, the Army is leaking deserters. One other thing that Sharp had done bef even before the Overland campaign, he had developed a psyops campaign for the government, basically saying, uh, spreading it out through the Confederates, that if you deserted, right, we will not throw you in a prisoner of war camp. We won't um, uh, force you to fight in the Union Army. We will send you north and find you a job. And if you came from an area that is now under Union control, you can go home. Okay, this is a brilliant campaign. Right. And then at Petersburg and Richmond, they upped it and they said, we'll give you a big bounty in Union greenbacks for your weapon. Okay, in fact, it was so advantageous that Union soldiers would desert and then try to come back and pass themselves off as, <laughs> as Confederates. Um, so he's, he's helping squeeze. There was one particular episode that I thought was revealing about how bad things were getting with Lee. He had, um, Lee had ordered a corps attack, I think it was the third corps. Was it in early March on the Union lines? And this deserter came in and said, the corps refused the order to attack. And General Lee wept like a child. Okay. Now, I went back and I looked, and there was actually that core refused the attack. Hmm. Whether he wept like a child, I don't right. know. We only have the deserter who said that. But I th that was a, an episode in Lee's life that no one had ever come across. But it, these 
these interrogation reports are filled with fascinating information. Um, desertions were so bad, especially among the North Carolina troops, that Lee had to detach a brigade to cover all of the bridges uh, over the river that separates Virginia from North Carolina. Um, he was leaking men at a horrendous rate. And of course, Sharp is laying out a honey trail for these guys to follow into Union uh, mm -hmm. lines. So his, his strength is being bled away, even without combat. Now, one other thing that uh, Sharp was intensely interested in and became a high collection priority was what he was picking up. The, the Confederates were talking about arming slaves, offering them their freedom and that of their families. And this had come from a manifesto written by General Patrick Claiborne, an Irish immigrant who had been called the Stonewall of the West. And he said, we're running out of white manpower. All we have left are our slaves. And we have to decide what is more important, our freedom or slavery. And it's obviously our freedom. So offer freedom to any slave that will fight for the Confederacy. And he asked to read this to all the general officers of the Army of Tennessee. Half of them, uh, among them, many majors, or large slaveholders, agreed with it, said, this is idea. Great idea. Um, but one asked for a copy, and he was just incensed at the very idea, sends it to Jefferson Davis, who orders that all copies be suppressed, this never be discussed again. This was in January of 64. This killed Claiborne's um, rise in the Army. He had been considered the best division commander in the Confederate Army. and He was slated for a corps. Well, that killed that. Mm -hmm. And he gets killed at Franklin leading, leading his division. Well, by October, Jefferson Davis is so desperate, he's raised the issue on his own now. Okay, And the Union, of course, is picking this up. General Lee said, this is a great idea. you know. He had been opposed to secession. He was not a fan of slavery. Um, so he said, this is a good idea. And you had a lot of officers who volunteered, or people volunteered to be officers in these regiments. Um, well, Grant, uh, Lee says, um, Sharp is worried that if they get enough black manpower into the Confederate ranks, it can extend the war beyond the patience of the Northern they're talking people. about 200,000 or something in that range, I yes, believe, right? Yeah. Um, and the quality of Union replacements had really fallen off at this time. You weren't getting the yeoman American anymore. You were getting drafted men and bounty men, and all these immigrants signed up right off the boat. And General Horace Porter on Grant's staff said, the Germans were worthless. He said, but the Irish... The Irish were always up for a fight. Patty was always up for a fight. He said there were no braver men on earth. And, uh, but uh, so there was this other problem, too, of Union exhaustion. Okay? So he makes this a major collection priority. Uh, as it turned out, the South collapsed so fast, even though they had started training some units, that this, there's very little documentation left because it, everything collapsed so right. fast at the end. Just one account of... Uh, black train guards fought off a Union cavalry attack. That's basically all I, I, I've heard about that. But I think um, this king on this issue was really important because it could have extended the war. Right. The war. And L Lincoln could have lost the election if things had continued to go badly. Well, because, I mean, not only losing the election, but the idea is there were a lot of Northerners that were starting to think about conditional surrender and allowing, you know, not kind of letting the South negotiate a surrender and not just straight oh, but, up. Well, but see, they were, this is pipe dream because Jefferson Davis would, one of the world's most inflexible type A personalities, would not countenance anything but outright independence. In fact, at the, if you watch the movie Lincoln, mm -hmm. and they have the meeting with the Confederate commissioners, it's not really true what they said, that the big fight was over the 13th Amendment. It wasn't. It was over their inflexible instructions from Jefferson Davis. Lincoln even pushed a piece of paper across to them and said, 
write across the top union and emancipation and you may write anything else you want below. And still they could not accept it. Okay. Uh, but if the union people could have been deceived, that's another issue. Because again, the wish is father to the thought if they so desperately wanted to be over and they would grasp that straw, who knows? Let me, let me wrap up by asking, there's, there's so much more to this book, but if we would have five hours if we wanted to break it down even more. But after the war, there's an interesting secret mission that Sharp is sent on that I had never heard of. The idea of after the Lincoln assassination to try to find out if there are links to Europeans. Uh, that's a, that, that itself could be its book. Uh, not, to, not so much to Europeans as to Americans living overseas. Right. Well, see, John Surratt, the son of Mary Surratt, had fled through Canada and he'd gone to Britain. And in January of 66, uh, the Secretary of State Seward asked Sharp to go and find out anybody, find out if anyone, Americans living overseas, had been part of the plot. <coughs> and he spends almost a year... Um, I think one of the main targets was Judah Benjamin, who had been the Confederate vice president, who had fled, and he, but he couldn't find anything. Um, he went all over, uh, France, Italy, he had pursued um, John Surratt, who was finally uh, arrested in, on an international warrant uh, in Egypt and sent back on an American warship. Uh, and there's a fantastic report in the archives that uh, Sharp wrote on, on everything he did. He was very prescient over the, the coming Franco-Prussian War. Um, a, a big banquet was held in his honor by British society. And one of the guests was a former Confederate officer who said, I have to be on my best behavior because this is the man that signed my parole. <laughs> did, he end up, did he end up signing the parole for any of the top, top yeah, Confederate for, commanders? Oh, for Robert E. Lee himself. Yeah. And uh, in fact, his, one of his proudest possessions was the last order ever issued by Robert E. Lee it was his pass through the Army of Northern Virginia. And it's in the museum in, uh, in Kingston, New York, where he's from. Um, along with this, the sword he wore at Lincoln's funeral, he was one of the General Officer uh, Guard of Honor, one for representing each state. Uh, he represented Georgia. And the sword's hilt still is wrapped in the black crepe that he uh, adorned it with it then. He wouldn't take it off. Uh, he was, uh, the war was the defining experience in his life, even though he had a rich um, and very fruitful career as a uh, Republican politician in, in uh, New York, Speaker of the Assembly, uh, Surveyor of the Port of New York, which was the, juice, one, the second juiciest plum in the plum book and Grant gave that to him. Um, again, a great supporter of African-American civil rights. Um, he was praised even by the Democrats as the Speaker of the Assembly for being a man who would listen and who was honest. Mm -hmm. um, his last military, oh, and he was also the corresponding secretary for the Society of the Army of um, the Potomac. Okay. After the war, Sharp was one of the most connected men in the United States. He yeah, knew I mean, everybody. Arthur, Chester Arthur and all the. Yeah. Oh, he was responsible for Chester Arthur becoming president. Yeah. Uh, that's a long story. Right, but, right. You know, so well, read the uh, book to find out about it. I mean, that's the key, right? Yeah. yeah. One, one, one last anecdote about Sharp. He was a very hardworking man as the chief of the BMI. He, he wrote an uncle. He said. <laughs> we're the hardest working men in the army because we're working all the time. You know, they're out, even outside of campaigns, we're working all the time. He would even go and brief the pickets on what information he wanted, like, you know, the regiment and the colonel and the strength and everything. And so, so he was telling a story about one Rhode Island soldier who called across the line and said, Hey, Reb, what's your regiment? Comes back, 24th South Carolina. How about you, Yankee? He said, Uh, uh, 147th Rhode Island. You're a damned liar, Yank. There aren't 147 men in that measly little state. <laughs> I mean, that's, 
they had the didn't you write that they kind of ordered them to stop having those kind of conversations down the road a little bit because yeah. that was giving up so much information yeah. about the order of battle and everything. Oh, they, they stopped the exchange of newspapers, which mm -hmm. has, had been a big thing before. Um, uh, the counterintelligence became a big effort uh, as well. Uh, he seemed to dabble in just about everything that we do now. Um, the union also, this wasn't his responsibility, but the union also had ciphers, mm -hmm. uh, telegraphic ciphers. They broke the Confederate one. The Confederates could never break the union one. Well, you'd written at some point that they were reading union mail and they added a cipher to it, but then they leaked out information over in the clear and actually used as, as a deception, deception operation. Yeah. Yeah. There's a lot of those wonderful tidbits in there where it's, it's we could spend an hour talking about each individual yeah, one yeah. of those. Well, I tell you, Sharp, I came to truly admire the man. And then I, it, just as I was writing the introduction, I realized what we shared. We each had three children, two boys up front and a daughter, both named Catherine, right? And both our mothers were named Helen. So I thought, hey, I had wanted to go back in time and knock on his door and say, write your damn memoirs. Right. Well, that was another thing. Everyone wrote their memoirs except... Well, he didn't because yeah. he was going to before he died. His son had been appointed to West Point by Grant, became the quartermaster general of the army in World War I, father of the quarter, modern quartermaster corps. But he, when he was a lieutenant colonel, he said, Dad, Mom's dead. Come to Washington. Stay with me and write your memoirs. But then he died shortly thereafter. So this has required massive research right. to fill like in a, all the gaps. Like a true spook, he didn't want anything written down. He wanted to make you work for it. So. Yes. <laughs> the did. result is the book, Major General George H. Sharp and the Creation of American Military Intelligence in the Civil War. The author is Peter Tesaurus. Uh, Pete, this book, I, 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 I'm someone that's always hesitant to dive deeply into a Civil War book just because I was inundated with it as a kid and it's always one of these things where it's like another Civil War book. But this was just so different because this information just I hadn't read anywhere else. And so even if you're somebody that just read everything there is to read about the Civil War, this brings an entirely new perspective to it because Sharp, like you said, this is the first real biography of an extraordinary man. So thank you so much for being here uh, and taking the time to talk to us here at SpyCast. It's been my pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to SpyCast. Remember, every Tuesday we will post a new podcast available from both spymuseum.org and iTunes. If you have any questions or comments about SpyCast, email us at spycast at spymuseum.org or leave a comment or review on our iTunes page. You can also follow us on Twitter at INTLSpyCast. That's INTLSpyCast. Talk to you next week. Listeners, we're always looking for ways to improve the N2K Cyberwire network and maintain the intelligence-driven news experience that keeps you in the know on the latest developments in cybersecurity. We've launched our 2024 audience survey and would love for you to take a few minutes to share your feedback. And hey, there's even a chance to win a $100 Amazon gift card if you complete the survey. Visit cyberwire.com slash survey. That's cyberwire.com slash survey and share your feedback now.